Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am so excited that you're about to listen in on another episode of the Made Possible by podcast. I wanted to take a quick second to let you know exactly what we do. Made Possible by makes giving easy for community-minded businesses and provide a more effective way to share their stories of good. Now let's jump into the podcast. Welcome to the Made Possible by podcast, where we have conversations around good with community-minded individuals. We hope that today's episode inspires you to go out and do good. Hello, and thank you again for joining us for another conversation around good. I am Tracy with Made Possible By, and we love to share stories of good. We love to talk about individuals, companies, causes that are making a difference in their community. And today, I'm so excited to introduce you to Cody. Uh, We met Cody, um, gosh, was it? about this time last year, right? About this time, 2020, before the whole world shut down. (laughs) We met live one time, right? Didn't we? Yeah, one time. I think that's all we did. So we met, um, we being uh, the Made Possible by team, met Cody through the Oklahoma City Thunder Lunchpad Accelerator Program that we did with Stitch Crew. And um, you you weren't the youngest guy there, but you you were pretty close, right? Um, I'm not sure what everybody's age is. I think I look a little bit younger than I am. Younger than you are. Okay. You're very spry. But yeah, I, uh, I was, I, I just turned 30 at the time. Okay. Oh, see, I wouldn't think you were 30. I know that I know men don't like to hear that. (laughs) Women are like, yes, but no, you don't look 30. So sorry. It's, it's a different thing. 20 years, I'll be, I'll be appreciative. There you go. There you go. In 20 years, that'd be great. So we met Cody through the um, Stitch Crew Oklahoma City Thunder Launchpad, and his concept immediately drew us in. Um, my husband and I have a son that has been dealing with incarceration, and so that was something that picked our, piqued our interest, and we were ready and wanting to jump in and help in any way that we could. And I'm excited to tell you how it's grown and how the – couple pivots have happened because of 2020, which I think is really cool, um, the way that you've been able to do that. So let me tell you first what SocialWise is. SocialWise helps governments and donors pay unemployed people to perform public benefit work to help them maintain housing and transition back into employment. Their mission is simple, optimizing upward mobility through the dignity of work. And Cody Merrill, you are the founder and CEO and I'm going to keep saying the name because it's cool. I like how you spell it too, by the way. Social wise with a Y instead of an I. That's very that's very creative. Um, Cody has a BBA in finance and a BS in e- economics. And you studied in France for a while. How cool was that? Um, I, I studied at the London School of Economics. In, oh, my in, goodness. In London. In London. Oh, I'm sorry. I have that wrong. But I spent more time traveling throughout Europe than I did studying, so I... (laughs) That's to be expected. It's a little bit different on paper than it was in reality, but I swear it was uh, was a better overall educational experience for, for my intellectual development. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So studied in London for a year, not France. Get that, get that right. And um, before that, you were the COO of Care Expand. Before that, you were the VP of strategy for MetaClinic. Um, Cody, after serving um, in these two software startups, um, one, were they in New Orleans, San Francisco? Which one was in New Orleans and San Francisco? So MetaClinic was based out of New Orleans, but we had 
uh, two really talented employees through a personal relationship in San Francisco, and they wanted to stay in the Bay Area. So the company had a three-bedroom unit there that was also like a startup house. And so I ended up moving out there and uh, really, really enjoyed living in the Bay Area. I I felt like for me, I was a fish in water. I was surrounded by talented young people who were really ambitious and were united by this belief that through technology, they could change the world for the better. And to me, it was just like, wow, this is like my homeostasis. Like it's my natural state of being like, I just need to, uh, yes, the uh, Bay area. And I still love living there, but I had an opportunity to come to Dallas for a COO job with care expand. And it was just an incredible career opportunity. It was a promotion, more responsibility. Uh, the, product was super robust remote uh, medicine technology platform. The CEO, Javier Vignoles, was he's a medical doctor, software engineer, and designer. And he's had several, uh, he's had multiple successful exits in the past as a founder. And so it was just an incredible opportunity to learn from somebody who was quite a bit older than me, but had been there and had done that. And uh, it was just an opportunity that I couldn't pass up, but that's what brought me back to Dallas. And I did my undergrad at SMU in addition to the London School of Economics. And so I had a lot of friends here and had a robust network of different professional connections. And um, it was just a, it was a great opportunity, unfortunately. The reason it was uh, such an attractive opportunity and why I was able to get an opportunity that as a, I mean, was I 28, 29, that most people in that age group wouldn't be able to obtain is because they're running out of cash and they needed someone to come in and try to generate traction uh, in, a, in a very short time period. And so that opportunity uh, lapsed sooner than I would have liked because of the board situation and the cash, uh, cash situation. But most importantly, it allowed me to uh, beef up my savings and that, and that is what allowed me to take the plunge into SocialWise full-time. SocialWise had been my passion project for, yeah. I would say, a year and a half before I took the full-time plunge. But it's, uh, it's, not, a, it's not an iterative business model. It's this fundamental uh, shift that, and this uh, movement that I need to create to get society to allocate resources differently Uh, as it relates to poverty, nutrition, the environment, reducing homelessness, recidivism. And it's, uh, you know, this huge dream. And my family and my friends were always saying, you know, you know, I think you should be a little bit more worried about paying your bills instead of trying to save the world, you know, like. No, it's it's so exciting because, like I said, when we first met, you were just very early, right? I mean, you're we. I didn't know that you were paying people with money that you really didn't have at that point. Uh, you know, to develop. <laughs> that's 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 kind of the startup thing, though, right? Sometimes we live that way by the skin of our teeth. Um, but that you just believed in that project, and it started with a heart for incarcerated people, right? I mean, that was kind of your main focus originally, and then 2020 kind of 
everybody pivoted a little bit more. I do want to go back to that, but I want to hear a little bit more about you personally. And uh, let's start with the startup house. Tell us about what, what the heck is a startup house? For me, I went through such an arduous journey as a solo non-technical founder with uh, a bank account that was uh, very slim and a credit card balance that was far less slim. And so for me, it's like whenever I could get to the point where I could raise money, it's like my uh, infant that was in the like ICU, you know, it was like a, in the in the NICU, you know, like a premature baby uh, is now going to have an opportunity to get out of the hospital, survive, go home with parents. And to me, it was like, I want to I want to line up everything to give myself the maximum possible chance that this baby can grow into a toddler and see the world and really have a fighting chance to make the difference that I've been dreaming about from day one. That's a good analogy. That's a good visual. And and for me, I thought, you know, like the the social network, you know, the movie about Facebook. The Facebook guys had a house. The Microsoft guys had a house. Like so many of the super famous uh, startup companies we're familiar with at some point in time had a bunch of people cooped up in a house. And there's no other way that you can really replicate that that level of obsession than whenever you have forced proximity. And with COVID, it doubly made it important because it doesn't make sense to live in all these different places, travel into an office together, and you know, just increase the chance of uh, spreading the disease. It's not particularly responsible. And so I thought, man, like the very first few people that I bring on board, like I need to make sure that these are people who are, who are like, okay, living with me because they know how crazy and obsessed I am about this business. Like, I'm not so worried about me living with them. It's like, can they tolerate having someone who's like uh absolutely obsessed 24 7 and so luckily i was able to get uh two of my best friends on board immediately and one was living in san francisco one was living in new orleans i had previously lived with the one in new orleans he was the software engineer the one in san francisco was uh, formerly an investment banker and sales manager at snp capital iq but he always had a heart for socialize always understood it and had always been willing to listen and provide advice whenever early on, you know, a lot of my family and friends who had the best of intentions were very concerned that I had this delusion that I was in possession of this like secret that was going to change the world and revolutionize how we address poverty. And I realized that it sounded crazy, but I believed it. And, and I still believe it. And uh, it's that level of conviction that as an entrepreneur helps you get through the low periods because you know that uh, what you're doing is worth it and that there's no more successful or there's no more rewarding or fulfilling life that you could live than one in which you make that idea happen. And I so badly want to live in the world where socialize is ubiquitous and everybody who's in need of extra income uh, 
has an opportunity to do immediate public benefit work, build up a digital resume, and then leverage that to get connected with the existing hiring infrastructure in society. And so I just always had that that conviction, and I thought the startup house is going to help me survive through the next financing round. I want to I want to make it happen. And then uh, after I brought those guys on board. We've added a whole lot of other people to the team. And so far, everybody has been someone that I've had a very long professional or personal relationship with. It's uh, it's unsustainable to think that, you know, if we grow, obviously you have to get beyond that and you have to hire people you don't know. But uh, in the early days, for me, the idea of taking personnel risk is uh, very scary because, you know, to me, I still view it as like, okay, you know, we might be out of the hospital, but we still have a baby that's, that's uh, sick, you know, it's, 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 it's not in a stable situation. It needs, uh, it needs a more comfortable situation. And all of those things contributed to the magic of our startup house. And it's amazing. I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's any other house in the world where at like one o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, you've got a bunch of people that are like fired up, like screaming and yelling about how excited we are to uh, be a part of the solution to solving homelessness or recidivism. And it's just really cool. Like, I don't know if you could have that level of enthusiasm if, uh, you know, if the business doesn't have such a powerful mission, but all yeah. of us are united by, uh, by, by empathy. We have a, we have a huge heart. We all really want to see, uh, the world be a better place and we want to use our professional talents to be a part of the solution, making it happen. And we want it to happen as efficiently as possible. And we want it to be as scalable as scalable as possible. And that's why we're working for socialize. It sounds like you're having fun doing it, though. I mean, do you have a ping pong table? I mean, do you? I, I see you guys need the problem with the I, that I see with you guys living together is you never stop working. Do you have times you're like, okay, we're stopping now, or do you just keep grinding away? Uh, whenever I lived with Franklin previously, we had a ping pong table, but we decided that was probably a bad idea because I'm I'm so uh, fiercely competitive that it's like. <laughs> Uh, annoying to everybody else and it's like last time we had a ping pong table I was like going like taking lessons like club ping pong like playing people in New Orleans like like we uh, joke that for me it's never enough to just uh, beat your opponent if you haven't thoroughly demoralized them in the process and so it's like everyone kind of needs like a little bit of a break from that but for me that's just who I am and I can't help it but we have gotten really into golf. We have a golf net in the backyard and we play fairly regularly. But I, I always insist that we divide the teams up evenly and we play head to head. Like there has to be some level of, uh, of competition. But of course, I am taking things too far. I'm now taking lessons and I'm practicing like three nights a week. And I, I can't help it. I want to win, but I feel like that's kind of what helps me uh, as an entrepreneur. Absolutely, I was gonna say, that's a great character for an entrepreneur to have, to be tenacious. 
that you are just a dog on a bone. You're just not going to give up. You're just going to keep going. So I love that. How many guys are in the startup house? Do you have an, is it, are you just the startup house? Do you have a social wise startup house? Well, we got a lot of people. So we have uh, four people living in the startup house. And then we have two living nearby, one of which is married. And so the wife with the baby on the way, for some reason, they just weren't down to piling into yeah. our five bedroom startup house. Uh, and then we just added a new guy to the team who had been a very close advisor all along. And uh, he was formerly the equivalent of a city councilor in Hawaii. So his name's Al Smith. And he was also a successful uh, FinTech co-founder in San Francisco, investment banking for seven years. And is just really, really identifies with the mission. He had a brother who struggled with addiction, incarceration, homelessness, and he knew how difficult that journey was back into employment. And he just readily identified with, wow, you have a solution to pay someone who really needs income to do public benefit work in the community that really needs to be completed, help them build up that digital resume, and then all of a sudden they can walk into a job interview with confidence to know that you can show, hey, over the past four weeks, I've worked 65 hours on public benefit projects. I'm credible. Uh, I'm capable of getting up in the morning, working hard, getting along with people. I, I can function in a professional capacity, and I am ready for this opportunity with your business. Well, yeah, I'm, my apologies. My questions have been kind of sporadic and I haven't really let you explain how that happens. How does SocialWise connect people? And you are just in Dallas right now, right? Because I was trying to get you connected with somebody um, in Oklahoma and I thought, no, you're not here yet, right? Right. We are, we are just in Dallas right now, but uh, Oklahoma, Hawaii, and the Bay Area are probably going to be our next markets just because of personal relationships that I have or other members of my team have. But I'm from Oklahoma and our, uh, one of our investors, Cortado Ventures, is based out of Oklahoma City and they've done a lot to help connect us with the State Workforce Commission and you've helped us connect with, with several people. So we have some momentum there and it's uh, close geographically. So the way our model works is we work with a nonprofit partner, which in our case is earthx.org, which hosts a community fund. So that's essentially a 501c3 bank account that can receive charitable donations. And then those donations are expressly used for uh, paying unemployed or underemployed individuals to perform public benefit work. Because they're an environmental organization, then their strong preference is that the uh, dollars be spent to fund environmental public benefit work. So there's no shortage of people who need extra income, and there's no shortage of public benefit work that needs to be completed. And so many people say, one of the things my mom would always say to me is, but Cody, who's going to pay for this? And my, yeah. and, my, and my answer is, as a society, we're already paying for it. You're paying for it either way. You're either going to pay to get the cavity filled or you're going to pay for the root canal. Oh, and, ooh, that's good. That's right? Good. And so uh, 
one of the things that, that struck me with the research. So here, first let me walk back to what inspired me and then I'll get back into the mechanics. So whenever I was living in combination of New Orleans, San Francisco and Dallas, I was struck by, particularly in San Francisco, the horrendous problem with homelessness. And it just, it would just eat away at me seeing all these people on the street. And I thought, man, like I've always had the soft spot for people who are falsely accused or people who are uh, presumed to not have value, but uh, are capable and willing, or maybe somebody who's like in the, in an insane asylum, but they were actually sane. And so it's, so it's like, there's these people, or there are these people who have so much human potential, they have so much uh, to offer the world, but they have no way to convey that to the majority of society who views them as somebody who's made mistakes, who's there for a reason, who's past their prime, who's unredeemable, who, who's taking up space, they're blighting the community, and it just seeing that these people are trapped in this uh, paradox just like ate away at me. And I thought, wow, you know, let me, let me start interviewing them. Like, let me start talking to them. You know, I have my camera. And so I did a lot of interviews. And one thing that was a unifying theme was so many people said, I, uh, you know, I could put in job applications all day long but nobody wants to hire you if you're homeless. Like, if you look like me, if you smell like me, people assume that, that you're no good, that you'll steal, and just yeah. all of these bad things get attributed to them based on their circumstance. And another thing that really struck me is that what caused someone to fall into homelessness was varied. It wasn't all mental illness or debilitating drug use. Sometimes there was a domestic dis, uh, dispute. Sometimes they were LGBT and then got kicked out by their family. Sometimes they're in foster care and they aged out and they didn't have anywhere to go. Sometimes they got out of prison and they couldn't get a job. I mean, there's an, and I realized that there's an infinite number of reasons that could cause somebody to fall into this situation where they're either homeless or they're, or they're either experiencing homelessness or they are a rough sleeper, they're sleeping in a vehicle or on people's floors, uh, or, you know, maybe they got out of prison, they have some transitional sort of housing, but if they aren't able to, uh, you know, obtain income and work and have a career, then they're pretty much going to be right back to the streets, right back to jail. And I realized that there's, there's infinite complexity behind what causes somebody to fall into one of these situations. But that doesn't mean that the solution has to be equally complex. And obviously housing is a large part of the solution, but in order for housing to be sustainable, uh, you have to have income, employment, work. That's a part of dignity. That's a part of changing how they feel about themselves. That's a part of society changing how they feel about them. It's a part of affording the basic necessities of uh, housing, food, shelter, clothing. And I thought, if only we could just pay people who have fallen on hard times to do public benefit work that needs to be completed in the community anyways, 
then we could help them build up a digital resume so that they could convey credibility, they could have a little bit of money in their pocket, they could avoid the immediate financial desperation, and they can get plugged into the existing infrastructure that we have in society that helps with housing, employment, and they have a, what I say is a puncher's chance at upper mobility. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, like what, the way we're currently spending money to solve these problems, like it can't be efficient. Like I know from my healthcare experience that the emergency room is, is about the least efficient way that you could possibly spend a dollar to solve a problem. <laughs> And, and so I did a lot of research, and one of the statistics that really struck me was that, I think it was in Richmond, Virginia, was an example, was that like the median amount of money owed in rent in the event of an eviction is $686, yet taxpayers pay $40,000 a year per person experiencing homelessness on average. So there's this huge arbitrage spread and it occurs right at that point of personal insolvency. And practically overnight, the problem becomes far more expensive to solve. And so if we can just provide an immediate barrier-free opportunity to pay people who need work, to do public benefit work that needs to be completed in the community, then we can help them get back on their feet, we can create public cost avoidance, and we can also provide charitable donors an opportunity to get a really large bang for their buck because they're not just helping someone avoid homelessness, avoid eviction, avoid incarceration. They're also able to use this massive on-demand labor force to solve social problems in their community at scale. So, uh, you know, instead of a few volunteers cleaning a beach once a month or planting trees once a month or, you know, tending a community garden once a month, you could have thousands of workers like, shift by shift by shift, day by day by day, beach by beach by beach. Uh, You know, you could plant entire forests of trees and save money in the process while generating massive amounts of public benefit work. And whenever I realized that there was this huge arbitrage opportunity to generate outsized outcomes per dollar spent, then like what community in the world wouldn't want to save money while reducing homelessness, reducing evictions, reducing uh, incarceration, and scaling community gardens, beach cleanups, tree plantings. Like, who in the world would not want this solution? I just have to build the tech product to prove that we can connect the stakeholders, we can track the outputs and outcomes, and we can actually make this model work. Uh, Fortunately, that's what raising money was able to allow us to do. We have a pilot and now we're looking to expand it and we can't wait till we get more a, a more robust data set that proves what we know all along, that this is an extremely efficient way to allocate public and charitable dollars. So, so, so back to your question of how does the model work? We have the community fund set up through our nonprofit partner, EarthX. And can I jump in real quick and ask you a question? So is EarthX your partner in Texas only, or are they going to be your partner forever? So they're going to be our partner forever for environmental work projects. But down the line, uh, we would be open to opening up community funds 
through different custodial organizations and, and community funds that would also be willing to fund work projects that don't explicitly have environmental public benefit. So serving meals, for example. There's no shortage of good work that needs to be done to benefit the world. So that's our custodial organization. And so we can take money from local, state, federal governments, uh, from foundations, individual philanthropists, corporate social responsibility initiatives, and also crowdfunding initiatives. And all of those donors, uh, all those various types of donors, profiles, are currently spending money in some capacity trying to benefit one of our various causes that we touch, one or more. Well, our argument to them is, how would you like to maximize the bang for your buck there and have a very robust stack value proposition that touches, that provides income for the unemployed, that allows for industrial scale public benefit work projects, that creates a digital sales funnel to social services, that creates an accelerated path to private employment, that manufactures social capital and builds empathy in the community, that allows for uh, the banking of the unbanked. I mean, like who wouldn't, like if, if I was Bill Gates, I would write a huge check right now. Yes. Bill, are you listening? Are you listening? We want you in on this. <laughs> I mean, if you listen to the conspiracy theorists, he is. So. Okay, there you go. He's listening. So go ahead. Go ahead and write that check. At Cody yeah. Merrill. <laughs> oh. We want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Strategic Hype. When people ask you about your business, what do you say? How do you describe your products or services? Are you selling yourself short because you just can't put it into words? You're good at what you do, but it's not always easy to communicate how you're great at your work with simplicity. But now you have help. My friend, Andrea at Strategic Hype, will help you clarify your mission and communicate your value with a hype kit. This process will help you cut through the noise and share the best of what you do. Made possible by recently brought Andrea on to create a hype kit for us. And I am so excited to see it based on other things I've seen her do for small businesses, large businesses, nonprofits, and churches. For details on all the good stuff you get out of this hype kit, email Andrea at strategic hype.com or reach out to us directly at madepossibleby.us and we will get you connected. Well, it reminds me when I, when I originally, when you started and you pivoted a little bit because of 2020 with the unemployment rate going so crazy, but it reminds me of um, FDR's New Deal. Um, you know, back after the Great Depression and just getting people to work and that got the highways going and the national parks. And I mean, there was so much of a huge benefit. So in light of all that, um, you seem positioned to be the secret sauce, right? To recovery, especially after 2020. Um, but there's a lot of organizations that are focusing on helping the homeless and those who are facing, house facing housing insecurity and varying degrees of success. So what makes you all different and how does your model better create potential outcomes? Sure. So I would say that 
let me touch on that first part and then kind of segues into the second part. That what, what we are trying to do is very much so in line with FDR style work programs like the Civilian Conservation Corps or the Works Progress Administration. And uh, that it's essentially a recognition by government that a more efficient way to solve the problem is to pay people who really need income who would cost more without it to do public benefit work that needs to be completed, preferably public benefit projects that would that that must need to be completed. You know, just be intelligent about finding the people who are doing the work and the work projects that they're going to be completing. And that's a very efficient way to spend dollars and to put money into the economy because whenever people who are on the lower end, end of the income spectrum uh, have more money in their pocket, they spend their money on goods and services at a higher rate than higher income people. And so that's a, that's a huge injection into the economy. And uh, we are big fans of what FDR did, but to us, there's an even easier way to implement that today. So instead of the government having to go through a huge process, sourcing all of the talent and trying to identify people who most need the work and having huge bureaucracies to implement large scale work programs, why not work through existing nonprofits who are located in every community in the country, pretty much, of any size, who work with populations of individuals who are facing employment hardship. Homeless shelters, sober living facilities, prison reentry programs, halfway houses, uh, veterans organizations for veterans who are struggling returning, maybe they had PTSD. There's no shortage of organizations working to service those populations of people. And they know their constituents well. They have at least somewhat modern data systems. They, they know who has phones. They know who wants to work. They know who's ambulatory. They know who has the right to work. And they, like, why not leverage that existing infrastructure to source our talent? And that's yeah. what SocialWise does through, through our app. And every single homeless shelter, sober living facility, prison reentry program that we've ever visited with, and, and we say, hey, how would you like to introduce this opportunity to your constituents? And how many of them do you think would be prepared to be successful on our platform? We're batting a thousand. Every single one said, wow, a large portion of our constituents would greatly benefit from immediate public benefit work that pays at a locally determined living wage where there's flexible scheduling so that they can still meet with their probation officer or whatever other existing life obligations they have that helps them build a digital resume, that helps them convey credibility. Yes, our people would love this. Whenever you have all the pieces in place, come back to us and we will supply you with a never-ending pipeline of yeah. workers who uh, really need this work and would cost society a lot if they weren't able to obtain it. Well. On the work side, it's just the same. Now there's no shortage of nonprofits who are tending community gardens. So there's no there's no shortage of nonprofits who are tending community gardens, who are uh, cleaning beaches, planting trees, uh, cleaning parks, um, serving meals, distributing produce. There's tons of organizations that are already. Uh, coordinating those work projects. And 
the vast majority of them have excess capacity. And every single one we've spoken to, and we've said, hey, how would you like it if you guys could use this application and you could supplement your existing uh, volunteer workforce with workers in the community that you don't have to pay for, who you don't have to pay for. And you can have, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100, whatever workers every day helping you scale your tree planting, beach cleaning, park cleanup. Would you like that? And every single one has said, yes, that would be amazing. So if there's existing nonprofit infrastructure for sourcing people who most need income and for deploying laborers on public benefit projects scattered throughout the entire country, why would the government recreate that wheel when they could just simply write a check, contribute to community funds, and then there's a scalable platform called Socialize that helps connect all the various stakeholders and helps uh, map out the outputs and outcomes so that they can document the efficacy. So you're like the golden Lego that connects all the pieces together. I mean, social-wise, like you said, the infrastructure is there. There's no, the demand is easy to be met. You just have to connect those two things. So I was looking at your site about the number, was it 80% of homeless or people in the U.S. have cell phones? Because it's an app, right? It's an app that they get on. Do you want to walk us through that on how people sign up to use it? Sure. So... Uh, right now we're just based in Dallas and we aren't facilitating organic worker sign up. Everybody has to be referred to us from, from a referring org. So whether it's a homeless shelter we're working with, a sober living facility, a prison reentry program. Uh, but at scale, we would like to be able to achieve uh, organic worker sign up. But one question that people always ask me is, yeah, but see that guy on the street? You think he has a phone? Come on. And what I say is, look, we aren't naive enough to think that social-wise can be a solution for everybody in society. There are some people in the unsheltered homeless population who are currently experiencing mental illness and or uh, substance abuse problems on a level that is too extreme for us to really be able to help them. But in general, that self-selects for people who also aren't able to maintain a working smartphone. So for us, we would love to help everybody, but we have to be realistic, we have to be practical. So if we can help the people who are capable of helping themselves, then we can allow the more intensive social resources to go to the people who have the more extreme problems. And hopefully that way, everybody can get the care that they need and we can move forward as a society without leaving anybody behind, without viewing anyone on the street as discardable. Well, I just really see you guys as the secret sauce, you know, uh, especially your pivot this year with, you know, the rising unemployment rates, because originally your focus was incarcerated people. And now that you've incorporated, you know, it's a much broader scope. Like you said, there's unlimited workers out there and there's unlimited needs that need uh, to be met out there as far as public works. So you're the secret sauce. Thank you, Tracy. I uh, think so too. 
I think my baby is special, but my mom always told me I was special. And, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of bias. So it's, uh, it's, it's always great to have some external verification. Yes. So tell me, where did you get your heart for people? Cause you said that you, it really struck you when you were in San Francisco, but clearly you have a heart for others somewhere. Did you have an example in your family or I don't know what, what started that? Uh, well, Part of it is my sister's a legal aid attorney, and so she would tell me about various situations and the types of problems that her clients would face on a daily basis. And she told me a lot about her work with evictions and how the the event of the eviction is like the single largest loss of value. And if you can just stem evictions, then you can help cut the spigot off to a cataclysmic sequence of events, homelessness, incarceration, uh, lower health outcomes, educational outcomes. There's all this, uh, all these adverse childhood experiences associated with that, that stay with people for a lifetime. And so that kind of sparked my interest in uh, the most efficient ways that you can use resources as a society to help solve social problems on the front end. But additional contributing factors is, I would say whenever I was studying in London at the London School of Economics, it was always very interesting to me to see how other countries solve social problems and to compare that with how America solved them. And, you know, to not, not the one way was always better than the other, but it just really opened up my eyes to, there's a whole, world uh, possibilities and there's other countries that have a lot more successful uh, programs in various aspects that could be applied to the United States that would help us solve these problems on the front end instead of pretending like people just need a kick in the ass and then they're going to wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden uh, not be poor. And so that, that, that really opened up my eyes. It changed my worldview. But I would say my heart for people is something that I have had from a very young age. I, I have, I've never understood instances of injustice and how pervasive they are in society and why people can just go along with their day and act like they don't exist. And for me, I've, I've always felt this compulsion that whenever I see something that uh, violates my sense of justice, then I have to proactively take a stand and try to do something to the best of my ability to make that happen. And, you know, for much of my life, they were small stands, you know, it was speaking up, it was saying something. But as I got older, I uh, developed a greater sense of responsibility to use my professional skills to create the change that I wish to see. And uh, as I was acquiring the skill set with software and uh, strategy and understanding how to add value to various stakeholders and how software can create really elegant business solutions that drive efficiency and scale, uh, it, you know, that struck me as I was acquiring those skills, the inspiration for social life struck me while walking down the street in San Francisco, realizing how how horrendous this problem is, 
and I was positioned at a point where I had the skills and the network to make it happen. And I had the heart to uh, identify the problem and to never let it leave my mind. And then I had this crazy conviction and will to win that uh, never made losing an option. And, you know, I, there were points in time where I thought that I might have to do some other thing, uh, things for money to, to get me by. But the idea of turning my back on SocialWise has never, uh, ever entered my mind. I always knew that I would find a way to make it work. I would rather do it sooner than later so that we can reduce human suffering uh, earlier. But I knew it was going to happen. And for me, like people ask me, well, you know, what's your exit plan? Like there is no exit plan. Like all I ever want to do is socialize. It's a never ending opportunity to manufacture uh, value for society and people who are living on the margins who most need my assistance. And I've got a million features that I can build out for the rest of my life that will all drive at optimizing upward mobility and introducing people to other you know, third-party goods and services that will help their journey on, on upward mobility. And so there is no exit plan. Like, this is all I ever want to do. And I, I think my uh, core team feels the same way. We have an uh, endless opportunity for uh, social improvement. And, and the allure is too much to pass up. I uh, feel like I'm a bug flying it into a bug zapper. Like, like, like there's, there's a no looking away. Like I've got, I've got one goal and we're never going to stop till we get there. Well, like you said, right now it's clearly a huge issue, especially after uh, COVID. There's a lot of people that could definitely benefit from your service. And I, I just appreciate your heart because not a lot of people would even necessarily notice the homeless people on the street, let alone think, I'm going to do what I can to solve this problem. You know, so that's, I, I, I really appreciate that. And I would, I would definitely say that I see your vision since the very first time that I met you and that you were just committed to making this happen. And it's not about you getting a buyout. It's not about you moving on to something different. Um, clearly when you're up at one in the morning in the startup house and you guys are tearing and excited about, you know, new developments, it, that just shows your heart. So it's exciting to me to see that. Well, thank you, Tracy. Cody, what are some of the common myths surrounding housing insecurity? I would say that the most common myth associated with homelessness is that uh, people view the population as homogenous, but that's not the case. So they think of the guy that they saw on the street corner who was shouting and breaking bottles and, you know, was in their mind is completely out of his mind. And they think that that's representative of everybody experiencing homelessness. But that's just not the case. A lot of people experiencing homelessness are children. A lot of people are rough sleepers. They're sleeping in a van. They're sleeping on people's couches. They're moving from floor to floor. They're in between different housing situations. Like the, the average duration of homelessness is, I think, less than a week, or at least less than two weeks. So, 
it's uh, not at all what you think that it is. And the majority of people experiencing homelessness do have smartphones and um, they use Facebook. A lot of them have email. They're not so different from you and I. It's not, it's not, it's not them over there and, and us over here. It's anybody just about, unless you're financially bulletproof, uh, you know, can, uh, can fall into a situation of housing insecurity if you face income disruption. And 25% of households a year experience income disruption. And that increases the chances of uh, eviction by like 25 times, which clearly, but uh, it's, you know, even whenever I've had a really good salary, people have a way of changing their standard of living up to their salary to where they're not really saving as much as they should. And they just have this idea that, oh, you know, I'm just going to make more money in the future. It'll be fine. I'll catch up on my savings. But 40% of Americans couldn't afford an unexpected $400 expense or uh, 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. So the vast majority of our population is a few bad events away from not being able to pay rent. And when you fall on that hard time, when you experience that drop in your, in your income, it takes a while for you to solve that problem, whatever that problem is there's a period of time that's going to take you. And if you can't solve it in a relatively quick fashion, then you could be out on the streets. And with Socialize, we wanna take away that, that level of desperation from everybody. So if you experience disruption on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday, we want you to be able to download Socialize, find something in your community, you can go tend a community garden, you can go clean a beach, you can go plant trees, you can do something. You can earn a locally determined living wage and you can use that to uh, overcome that, that short-term financial barrier and use that as a transitional work opportunity to uh, buy time so that you can f find that, that next employment opportunity and so that you don't face that desperation to take the first job available. So, you know, if you have some skills, you don't have to go immediately to McDonald's because you, you feel that desperation. You can use the Socialize app. You can carve out hours of your day when you don't have to watch your kids or whatever other life obligations you have. And you can have some level of financial security that will buy you time to make intelligent career decisions. Tell us about the public jobs guarantee that has been discussed in Washington and how you hope to join in on that. Sure. So there have been a lot of different measures uh, discussed at a federal level for a federal jobs guarantee. So that's essentially like an FDR style work program. And for us, we feel like we have a very compelling narrative for them. And we're hoping that we can generate as much traction as we can so that whenever those bills start actually being taken seriously and the votes are getting close, then they can point to the Socialize app and they can say, oh, hey guys, there's this easy button. We don't have to 
It's already built. Go through this rigmarole trying to source these people who most need the work and find all this public benefit work and then and then who's going to coordinate it and how are we going to track everything. Yeah. That infrastructure already exists in society. The Socialwise app exists. It tracks all the outputs and the outcomes. And uh, it's just on a silver platter. This is a check-ready program. Let's just write the check. Tell us really quick about um, some of your new investors, some people who have um, chosen to invest in your idea. So we've been very fortunate that uh, Mark Cuban has decided to invest in Socialize uh, last summer, and that has just opened up a wealth of opportunities and interest from other people. We're also backed by Cortado Ventures in Oklahoma City, and uh, and in private investor Jason Gaudet in Hawaii, along with a family office in California. And for us, they're all they all add huge strategic value. They believe in the vision. They're they're uh, in it for the long haul, and we just couldn't be any more grateful for their. Not only their belief through the investment, but their willingness to make introductions and uh, add strategic value. It, one of the things I always told my mom is, yeah, I'm all alone right now, but someday I'll have an army behind me. And having their support along with our, our team and the startup house, our castle, it, like, yeah. it really feels like we have a fighting chance to make this as big as we dream. I, I was so excited when I heard that. I smiled really big when I heard that because this is, it's a brilliant idea, Cody. Um, real quick, just give us your shout out. What's your motivational, motivational statement? What do you want to leave people with today? So for me, whenever people say like, how did you do it? Like, how did you overcome the barriers with such an ambitious idea? What the way that I distill it is I say that you have to be a force of nature for an extended period of time, pushing up against a mountain. And eventually, erosion will give way to landslide. And you'll reach a tipping point where you get enough belief and support and momentum that you can start moving giant chunks of earth at once. And I encourage everybody to have the courage to find their mountain that they want to push against, their huge change that they want to make in the world and be absolutely relentless and know that if they are, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, homeless, poverty, um, job insecurity, all those things are huge mountains. So Cody, thank you for having a heart that cares about other people. Thank you for seeing those people on the street in San Francisco and wanting to do something about that. So I appreciate your heart and thanks for taking the time today. And listeners, thank you again for joining us for another conversation around good. Um, if you want to get connected with Co uh, Cody, we'll have all his information below and you can get involved in this really exciting world changing program. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening in to another episode of the Made Possible By podcast. Made Possible By helps make community giving easy. The businesses we serve love to give back to their communities with their time, product, and cash. It's rewarding, but not easy. So let us help you continue to do good in your community.
Thank you for joining us for another conversation around good. Hit that subscribe button so you never miss out on a story of good. Made Possible by makes giving easy for community-minded businesses and provides a better way to share their stories of good. Go to madepossibleby.us for more information or to sign up to be a guest on our podcast. Now, get out there and make good loud.